please stand for the reading of our Holy Scripture, which is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure." Let's go before the Lord and pray. Jesus, my simple prayer this morning is that you would reveal your glory to us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the height and the humility of your heart. And I pray that you would give us the greatest gift of all, the gift of yourself. And I pray that you would teach us how to be like you. I pray that the mind that is in you would also be in us. I pray that we would learn how to be filled up in you and emptied out for one another. Lord, I love you for who you are. I love you for what you've done, and I love you for what you will do this very day. And so I give you my thanks and my praise in Jesus' great and gracious name. Amen. When I was a child, uh, Christmas was absolutely my favorite time of year. Along with uh, all the normal decorations that pretty much every family does, our family would also create a, a countdown calendar for Christmas. I don't know, do any of you guys do this in your families? We would make a little calendar that starts at December 1st and goes to December 25th, and then in one way or another each year we would do it a little differently just to keep it interesting, and we'd count our way up to Christmas or down to Christmas, however you want to say it. And so as a kid, I can just remember as each day was marked off, the joy would rise, the anticipation would rise. The hope in my heart of what would be under the tree for me would rise. The joy of putting things under the tree for other people would rise. And by the time December 24th came, I was really ready for that day, but I must admit December 24th was always the longest day to me because we were so close, but just so far, right? 
But finally the night would come and as, uh, as, with my parents and others in the family, we would bake cookies and leave them out with a glass of milk and we would go to bed and I would do my very best to get some sleep, whatever sleep I could get. And I can remember waking up early in the morning. I was always the first one in the family to wake up. I'm still the first one in the family to wake up. But on Christmas morning, all oh, the joy that I had, I would run from my room. I can remember running from my room out into the living room and I have so many memories of the joy of what I would see under that tree. Probably the, the strongest memory I have was around 1975. When I came out of my room I, and, I, and I went into the living room, I looked and just to the left of the tree there was a brand new bike for me. It was exactly what I wanted. It was a BMX bike. It was a, a color of red that I really liked. Had the perfect kind of handlebars, the perfect grips, the perfect seat, perfect tires. I was so excited and I came to find out that my older brother, who was 10 years older than me, and absolutely one of the heroes of my life, he had actually built that bike for me. So not only did he buy it, but he built it. And I, I can't remember another thing about that Christmas because I was so distracted by that bike. All I wanted to do was get out and ride it. And you have to remember, I'm from Southern California, so it gets super cold out there on Christmas Day. It's like 60 degrees or something <laughs> on Christmas Day, you know? So I spent that day riding my bike. I rode that thing all over the place and all of the memories that I have. It amazes me that 40 years after the fact, I still get so much joy thinking about that day. I get joy thinking about that particular president. And the, the reason I think it is, is because it really wasn't about a bike. This was about my brother's heart. My brother loved me. He knew me. He knew what I wanted. He knew what would give me joy. He was only 18, 19 years old. I was eight or nine years old. But he took his hard-earned money and he put labor in it. He built that bike for me. And I think that's why it gives me so much joy. It wasn't just a present. It was a heart that was being given to me. And I'm sure that many of you have great memories of Christmas as well. And perhaps you're going to create some lifelong memories even in the, the next week here. And from my point of view as Christian people, there is nothing wrong with engaging in and enjoying all of the cultural things that we do at Christmas time, so long as Jesus remains first and so long as we remember to give him thanks for all things. But having said that, I do want to add that embedded in the Christmas story is a, a, a joy, a kind of joy, a depth of joy, an intensity of joy that is so much better than a bicycle and so much better than even a brother's love. So much better even than a family's love. It's a joy that is unfading. It's a joy that will increase in intensity and in measure forever and ever. It's a joy that will keep on giving in 40 years from now and in fact in 40 million years from now. And I mean that. And I pray that today each of us would take this gift because it's here for all of us to receive. It's right out on the table for anyone who would say yes, who would open their hearts to the gift of God in Christ. Now to those of you who've been around the church for any number of years, this church or another, you might be wondering why we're in Philippians 2 today. And by the way, sorry for putting the wrong text up there and confusing you. Philippians 2 is the right text. But you might be wondering why we're not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John or some traditional Christmas text. And my answer is very simple. Philippians 2 is not a traditional Christmas text, but I think that it helps us to see the measure of what God has done for us I think it helps to, uh, us to see beyond barns 
and sheep and shepherds and wise men and all the things of Christmas that matter and really have their place, but that still are secondary in in comparison to what God did. Philippians 2 helps us to see the measure of the gift that God has given us, and that's my hope for today. That's what I want us to see. So I want to walk now through the passage from verse 1 all the way to verse 13, and I want to warn you at first, this is going to seem like it has little or nothing to do with Christmas, but believe me, I think by the end we'll see it has everything to do with Christmas. The letter to the Philippians was written by a man named Paul. It's the one about whom Jordan talked this morning at the communion table. He had started the church in the city of Philippi and now he had left that place because God had other things for him to do and somewhere along the way he was actually arrested for preaching Christ in a place where they did not want Christ to be preached and he was put in jail and he was suffering in that jail. It was not an easy time for him but oh by the grace of God was it a good time. And the reason I say that is because while he was in prison God gave him the heart God gave him the time, God gave him the resources to write several letters that are still in our Bibles today. And doesn't it just amaze you how God will even use times of suffering to glorify his name if we'll just surrender to his will? One of those letters is the letter to the Philippians. And so Paul is sitting in jail. He's outwardly not in a good situation, but inwardly he is rejoicing. And he pens this letter to his dear friends. And he tells them how grateful he is for their partnership in Christ. How grateful he is to them for receiving the gospel and living the gospel and spreading the gospel with him for all those years. And he tells them in verse 6 of chapter 1 that he is certain that Jesus Christ is going to finish the work that he began in them. Paul is certain that the Christ they would believe in, that they had believed in, is the Christ that would bring them home all the way until the day when he revealed his glory for all the nations to see. This was in Paul a strong and powerful hope, and so he prayed for the Philippians in chapter 1. He prayed that their love would abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. He prayed that they would live lives of dedication to God and that they would live lives of love toward one another. And having offered his prayer, having expressed his desire to the Lord, Paul let them know that he wanted his beloved friends, he wanted his beloved friends to know that even though his time in jail was hard, God was using it because people were coming to know Christ in there. In fact, we read in the book of Acts that the very jailer himself who was superintending Paul came to know Christ and became a vital part of the church to which Paul was writing. And, and, then, and then Paul wanted them to know that the people around him who were already believers were so emboldened by Paul's joy in Christ in the midst of his time in prison that they were sharing Christ with other people who were coming to Christ and even others were still coming to Christ. And so he wanted them to know that Jesus was in total control and he encouraged them to press on and not to be discouraged by his suffering or their suffering. He wanted them to press on in the hope of Christ and not sink back into the shameful things of the world. And he wanted them, he used these words, to be of one mind together. He wanted them to be unified. He wanted them to be committed to each other. And he wanted them to be committed to each other for the sake of the gospel. He wanted them to be united in Christ that they might preach Christ in the world. This was Paul's hope for his beloved friends. Like my brother knew me, 
Paul knew his friends very well and he knew the best thing that he could give to them, the best thing he could pray for them is that they would love Christ together and share the love of Christ with the world together. But I think the question naturally rises is how this is going to happen. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see Paul's answer. He's, he's addressing the issue of how in the world are a people like us, a broken people, a hurting people, a sinful people, how are we going to be united together in Christ? Here's what he writes in verses 1 through 4. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, If there's any participation, or more literally, that means fellowship. If you're having fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Beloved, the way that Paul wanted his dear friends to be united for the sake of the gospel was this. He wanted them to receive from Christ and then to overflow with the grace and the love and the power of Christ toward one another. Please notice that there's nothing in these verses where he tells them to to do better and to try harder He does not tell them to strive in their flesh to do the things that he and that God are calling them to do. He does not demand that they obey God's commands in the strength of who they are. Rather, what he says is look to Christ. Receive encouragement from Christ. Have fellowship with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Receive the love of Christ. Receive the joy of Christ. Receive the mercy, the sympathy, the heart of Christ. And as you receive from Christ, then just overflow to other people. Beloved, his antidote, his answer to the question of how in the world will we live together for the sake of the gospel is receive and overflow. Receive and overflow. Be filled up in God and then empty yourself out for one another. Beloved, this is Paul's heart for his people. And so he gave them some practical counsel. You'll see in verses two to four, he said that because the love of Christ is so powerful in our lives, we should not be self-serving, but we should be other-serving. We should be the kind of people who are centered on Christ and focused on serving other folks. We should walk into a room thinking in our minds, how can I serve the people that are in this room? Not so much, how can I be served by the people who are in this room? Yesterday, while I was contemplating all these things, I went to a restaurant to have some lunch, and I was thinking to myself, you know, the rules of the room that I'm in right now is that these people are actually being paid to serve me, and yet my Lord is teaching me something. He's saying, don't think like that. Think, how can I serve those who are being paid to serve me? And my answer in that moment was, I could smile at them. I could be kind to them. I could look them right in the eye and treat them with full dignity, no matter what their job, no matter what their position in this world, and that's, that's what I did. We should learn to have this mind in us that was also in Christ, beloved, not just to be about ourselves. We should come to church filled with Christ, with encouragement and love and hope from Christ, and then think not, how can I get these people to meet my needs? 
but what can I give for the glory of Christ? This should be the heart that is inside of us, beloved. And I think it's an absolutely stunning vision of humble Christ-likeness. Notice that Paul does not say that we shouldn't think of our own interests. In fact, verse 1 assumes that we have interests and that God cares about our interests. Why would I need encouragement if I didn't need encouragement, right? Why would I need love if I was already filled up with love? Why would I need comfort and sympathy if I wasn't in need of comfort and sympathy? God cares about our needs, but the point is that as God meets our needs, let us be like him who filled us up. Let us overflow with the very spirit of Christ. Let us give to one another this gift. Beloved, I hope you can see that Paul is not calling on them or on us to do this out of our own flesh, but simply to fill up in Jesus Christ and to overflow. He's not calling on us to humble ourselves so much as he's calling on ourselves to look to Christ and to be humbled. This is what'll give us the resources. This is what'll give us the desire. This is what will give us the strength, beloved. This is what will give us all that we need to fulfill the calling, the the vision, the beauty of the first part of Philippians chapter two. Now, I think that Paul was a a wise man. I think that he was a godly man. He was a prayerful man. And I think he had in his heart this instinct that what he had said was not enough. I think he felt that the people might understand what he's saying, but they might not understand what he's saying. And in practical life from day to day, they might have a hard time finding the resources to live this kind of life that he's asking them to live. And so he decided by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to pen the most famous words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And if you will, please look there with me now. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So don't try to do this on your own. Fill up and overflow in Christ. Who... Though he was born in the form of, or though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now in these verses and in the following verses, I see four stages of what I call the height and the humility of Jesus. And this is what brings us right to the heart of the Christmas story. So I wanna just walk us through this. Stage one is found in verse six, and I would put it like this. Before Jesus Christ became a man, he was God without measure and without end. We learn from other portions of the Bible that Jesus, uh, that, that the fullness of deity dwells inside of Jesus Christ, which simply means that everything God is, Jesus is. And who else do you know who can say that about themselves? We learn from other parts of the scripture that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, which means that to look at Jesus is to look at God. And who else do you know who could make that claim, validly make that claim about themselves? To look at me is to see God in all of his fullness. But beloved, this is Jesus. This is how high he is. 
We learn from other parts of Scripture that he is the radiance of the glory of God, which means that to whatever extent the the glory of God is visible, Jesus is personally the one that makes it visible. And I ask you again, who else do you know who could validly make that claim? I am the one who shines and makes visible the glory of God forever and ever. We learn from other portions of Scripture that Jesus Christ is the one through whom God the Father created all things so that when you look at the stars and the sun and the moon and the land and the seas and the lakes and the trees, you are seeing the designs of God the Father and the very handiwork of Jesus Christ. We learn that God the Father has handed over to Jesus all things so that he is literally carrying all things, nations and neighborhoods, peoples and persons, the promises and purposes of God. He is carrying all things personally, bearing all things along until they fulfill their God-destined purpose. Jesus is the one who is doing that. He's in control of everything. We learn from other portions of scripture that when we all die and face the judgment on that great day of judgment, Jesus will be the one who is deciding the eternal destiny of everyone and of everything and his judgments will be perfect, his judgments will be good, nobody will object, nobody will file an appeal, everybody will bow and say that he did and said the right thing and beloved, his judgments will be irreversible, they will be inescapable. Oh, beloved, before Jesus took on flesh, please don't let your heart stop short of seeing this. Before he took on flesh, he was unthinkably high. Unthinkably high. Nobody, nobody, not even Satan, has ever thought of reaching the heights of Christ. And do you know why I say that? It's because nobody has ever been able to conceive the height of the heights of Christ ever. Oh, beloved, the Lord was so incredibly amazing before he took on flesh, which is what makes stage two so amazing. It's what makes it so inspiring, so awe-evoking, so worship-producing. It's why we're here in this room today, bowing not before a table or before a person or before anything other than Jesus Christ himself. This is why. Stage two. Jesus Christ, although he was God, without measure and without end, reasoned in himself that he did not need to cling to his position or to his prestige or to his power. Jesus Christ inside of himself, not from any external compulsion, but from inside himself, reasoned that since he had perfect fellowship With God the Father, heart to heart, soul to soul, mind to mind, strength to strength, since he had perfect fellowship with the Holy Spirit, he could let go of everything else. For Jesus, the highest position in the universe is not a place, but it's a relationship. And since he was filled up in God, he could empty himself out for others. This is stage two. It's the stage of consideration where Jesus knows, to the depths of his heart he knows, that because he is filled in his Father, he is free to empty himself. Beloved, have this mind in you that is also yours in Christ Jesus. Filled up in God, free to empty yourself for other people. This leads us to stage three. And stage three is simply this. Since Jesus was perfectly content in his Father, he freely and gladly took on flesh. 
Jesus became a human being, and not only that, but he chose to become a servant. The Greek word that's in this text for servant actually means slave. It's more than servant. There's another word in Greek that means servant. This one means slave. And I think what this means is that Jesus became a slave to the will of God for the glory of God and for the good of those who needed God. Can you imagine this? You have to think about how high Jesus was before he took on flesh. And when he took on flesh, he not only became a, 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 just a normal person in a normal family, but he became a slave to the will of God. He set aside his own need, his own desire to control his life, and he completely surrendered his life to the will and words and ways of God, his Father. His pleasure was to do the will of God, humbly and happily do the will of God. And so, when the Father of Jesus said to him, Son, I want you to go to a place where there's a leper. He has a disease. You're not supposed to touch him for a number of reasons. No one's supposed to touch him. I want you to touch him. I want you to bring help and hope and healing into this man's life because he's hopeless and he needs healing. And Jesus did that, beloved, not primarily because he loved that man. He did love that man. But I want you to understand, he did it primarily because he was humbly and happily submitted to the will of his father. He was a slave to the will of God. And so he touched the life of somebody who needed hope. This is why when the father said, Jesus, now I want you to go. My precious son, I want you to go. There's an adulteress. She's been caught right in the middle of the act of adultery. They're about to kill her over this. I want you to forgive her in a big public way. I want you to redeem her. And I want you to tell her to live life in another way. I want you to give her the hope that there's a better hope than the hope that she has right now. And Jesus did that, beloved. Certainly, he loved that woman. Later in the scripture, we see he loved that woman. But I'm telling you, what he loved more, what he loved more was submitting to the gracious and good will of his father. He came to be humbly and happily obedient. When the father said, Jesus, I've got someone else for you now, He's a rich thief. Nobody likes him. His name's Zacchaeus. He'll be waiting for you up in a tree. And when you walk by and you see him, I want you to call him down. I want you to go to his house. And I want you to to give him a hope that he does not have. And the Lord did just that in obedience to his father. And Zacchaeus was so changed that he said that he would give back four times what he had stolen to everybody. And besides that, he would surrender his possessions to God. Beloved, Jesus touched Zacchaeus because his father said to do so. And the Lord was happily, humbly submitted to his father's will. When the father said, Jesus, I want you to go to some arrogant, self-righteous people who love to wear the best clothes at church. They love to be up front where everybody's looking at them. They love to seem holy. They love to seem in power. They love their position. They love the breast place at the banquets. They love all the stuff of being a holy man. Oh, but they're hypocritical and they're arrogant. Jesus, I want you to go there and confront them so that they might have life. And we find out in the book of Acts, beloved, many Pharisees, many of these self-righteous people, including the Apostle Paul, actually did come to Christ. The Lord did that because he was happily submitted, humbly submitted to the will of his Father. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, filled up in the Father, free to pour yourself out for others. And then when that day came, when the impossible command was issued, 
the one that had been conceived from before the foundation of the world, my beloved son, I want you now willingly and happily to take up your cross and I want you to willingly and happily lay down your life. I want you to bear the wrath for the sin of the world and I want you to pay the price for the sin of the world so that whosoever believes in you will not die but will have eternal life. And beloved, most of you know that Christ obeyed his father. In Gethsemane, he struggled to the point where he sweat drops of blood. He struggled mightily, but he bowed down to the will of his father with a happy and humble heart for the joy that was set before him. And he took up his cross and he died. But what I want us to see today, beloved, is that he did that mainly in love for his father. It was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. Oh, did we need that sacrifice. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no way for our sins to be forgiven. That's how serious our sin is in the sight of God. And the truth is that without the infinitely perfect shed blood of Christ, there would be no hope of forgiveness for anybody, no hope of reconciliation with God, no hope whatsoever. We had to have that sacrifice. But I really want us to understand there's something greater than the sacrifice, and it's the heart of Jesus. It was the glad, submissive heart of Christ that made the awesome sacrifice. His heart toward the Father was actually greater than the sacrifice he made on the cross. It's the bigger thing. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Filled up in his Father and willing to, em- willing to empty himself out for the good of others and the glory of his Father. Oh, beloved, Christ was so incredibly high, and he made himself so amazingly humble. And because this now, we come to stage four. And stage four is what I would just call the exaltation of Christ. Because Jesus Christ did what he did in this particular way, through happy, humble obedience, happy, humble submission. Oh, the Father has been pleased to exalt him to the highest place and to give him the name that is above every name, so that... At the name of Jesus Christ, every single knee should bow, even in heaven and all over the earth and under the earth, and every tongue profess that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, beloved, may God give us eyes to see. Jesus went from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. And then God the Father brought him to the highest of heights again. But it seems to me that now he's even a little higher, if that was possible. And what I mean is that now since Jesus humbled himself and and so happily and humbly submitted himself to the Father, now when he stands at the right hand of God forever and ever, he stands as the one who displayed perfect love, perfect humility, perfect mercy, perfect grace, perfect steadfast love. He has displayed for the universe to see things that were in his heart before, but that remained unseen. And so in a way, the now exalted Christ is exalted to even a higher place, if that were possible. And beloved, this this is the great treasure trove of Christmas. This is the great treasure trove of life. The glory of Christ laid down for our Life. That's what Christmas is really all about. With all of this in Paul's heart, with all of this in his mind, 
he now returns to his beloved readers and says this in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, because of all of this, my beloved, my dearly loved friends, whom I care about with the affection of Christ, as you have always, what? Obeyed. Obeyed. See, like Christ. It's a kind of obedience that Paul is after. Not just sheer obedience. It's a loving, humble, happy obedience. Now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in light of the stunning vision of Christ that Paul just laid out, he calls on his readers, he calls on us to do two things. First of all, he says in verse 12 that we should passionately apply the grace of God in our lives. And that's what that word work out means. You see that in verse 12? Work out your salvation. That, that's one word in Greek. And it means to passionately work at something. To have focus. To have intensity. To give all of yourself to something. And what's that something for Paul? That something is come and be like Jesus Have this mind in you that was also in Jesus. Happy, humble submission. Filled up in Christ. Emptied out for others. Work at this, beloved. Give it all your passion, all your time, all your strength, all your energy, all your everything. Become like Christ, which is your salvation. And as you do this, do it with fear and trembling. I think what he means is do it with the awe and reverence of people who have eyes to see the height and the humility of Jesus. See who he is. See what he's done. Tremble at him. Tremble at him with loving, happy trembling. And then come and be like him. Come and be like him. But oh, how I praise God that he wrote verse 13. This is the second thing. In verse 13, Paul says, how is this going to work, basically? How are you going to be able to do this, Philippians? Elk River Arians, how are you going to be able to do this? He says in verse 13 that God the Father is energetically working in us. That's what the word there means in Greek. There's one Greek word that just means work. There's another word that means energetically work. And in fact, it's the word we get our word energy from. God the Father is going to energetically work in you to cause you to want to do his will and to be able to do his will. And as I contemplated this this week, I was just stunned by this fact That the same God and Father who is working in Jesus Christ is right now working in us who believe. The same one who gave Jesus all the resources, all the humility, all the power, all the happiness, all the everything he needed to empty himself out for others, that same Father is now working in us through Jesus Christ. Do you see? This is not a call to do things in our own strength, beloved. This is a call to admire Christ, to be filled up with Christ, and to simply overflow with the love of Christ as God the Father himself works in us things that we could never work in ourselves. And as we submit to God in these things, as we surrender to him, what what is our life together going to look like? In practical, everyday life, what will it look like? Well, I come back to the first few verses. Let's read them again together. So, If there's any encouragement in Christ, you're seeking the Lord. Surely at some point along the way as you're seeking him, he's going to give you encouragement. If you have any comfort from his love, surely as you seek him, he's going to comfort you in your life, comfort you in your circumstances. If there's any participation, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, has he given you any particular joy this week as you've walked with him and talked with him and read his word? 
If you have any affection or sympathy, like this morning when I was praying and God just gave me a vision of a great and massive harvest taking place this very day all over the world as the gospel is preached all over the world. If you get any sympathy or affection, not just from your flesh, but from your Father, oh, then complete my joy. Complete Paul's joy. Complete God's joy by being of the same mind by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Filled up in God, emptied out for others. But in humility, come to the place where you actually consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Indeed, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Beloved, The best gift ever given is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This is the greatest gift. This is the gift worth waking up early for and running from your room to wherever you go to be with him. The best gift ever given is Jesus Christ crucified and risen, exalted, humbled, exalted again. It's so much better than a bicycle. It's so much better than a brother's love. It's so much better than a family's love. It's so much better than any human love at all. Beloved, anybody who looks to Jesus Christ now, that he's given himself for us, anybody who looks to him will not die, but will have everlasting life. They will find a way to peace with God and fellowship with God and a relationship with God forever and ever and ever. And so the call upon us again is simply to fill up with Christ and overflow with Christ to the world. This is the gift he gave us, not just this, but every Christmas, and it's the gift I think he wants us to give. So as I close, I just want to call you to do two things. First of all, I want to ask you to join our family, and in our family, we're going to take some time and make Philippians 2 a part of our Christmas meditation, both today on Christmas Day. Whenever we do Christmas-specific things, Philippians 2 is going to be there. And I want to encourage you to do this. Meditate on Christ. Beloved, the blessing is in the doing, so please just open up your Bibles together. Take time. Take time and see what God might give you to see. Be amazed at Jesus. Be filled up with Jesus. Be comforted with Jesus. Be empowered by Jesus. And then secondly, I just want to encourage you to do this text by the power of God and overflow with the love of Christ to one another. Show that you've received the greatest gift ever given by the way you love each other. Filled up with Christ, emptied out for others. And I know that some of us in our families this time of year is actually a hard time of year. All kinds of difficulties in our families, all kinds of... uh, grievances and all kinds of grief in our families. I I know that this is not always easy for us, but I'll tell you the secret, the key to being a true joy-filled Christian at this time of year is having this mind in us, which was also in Christ, filled up in God, therefore able to empty ourselves out for others, even those who don't deserve us to empty ourselves out for them. May God give us this mind in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us now. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much more for the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us and indeed for the world. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive and mouths to praise you and wills that will bend to you. Oh, how I pray that we would know the happy, humble submissiveness of your heart in our own lives. How I pray that you would use us, Father, in each other's lives to glorify your name. And how I pray, Lord, that you would use us as we go into the world. That we would 
beam with the light of Christ and that we would spread the aroma of Christ everywhere, that we would be filled up in you and able to empty ourselves out for others. Oh, Father, please hear and answer this prayer this day for the glory of your name and for the joy of our souls and for the good of our cities and of the nations, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.